the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, normally I would say it's Wednesday, the worst day of the week, but today is exceptional. Now, on Thursday of last week was Clark's birthday. I really wanted to do something big for Clark's birthday. He took the day off. Well, then on Monday, Monday, then I can redeem myself. When he comes in on Monday, we'll do a big birthday thing. He was sick. Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday, that's going to be the day that we celebrate Clark's birthday. Then we get an email to all the employees here that on Tuesday, the entire staff is going to celebrate all the birthdays that occurred in April. Okay, what about Wednesday? Okay, Wednesday will work. He's here, I'm here, the cake's here. Unfortunately, none of our co-workers are here. Most of the sales staff, they've gone to some kind of a training thing. So we're down to a skeleton crew. Now, my plan was 30 people were going to stuff themselves into the engineer's booth. And there would be Clark with a cake flaming with candles because he's 40-something, you know, with lots of candles. And we'd all sing happy birthday. It'd be a great celebration. He'd be surprised. And that would be, well, instead... While the music is playing, the show is about to begin, I wobble in there with a cake with some candles on it. He blows them out. I rush over here to start the show. It's the most lame birthday celebration I've ever tried to orchestrate. No, no, no. Everything worked out fine. See, I'm still sick, too. That's true. You you do sound sick. But know what I mean by that. There is no one here to show uh, to share a ginormous cake. <laughs> it's really like, but and you, you know, make it sound like that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, really. You take half, and I'll take <laughs> yeah, half. Yeah, we're good to go. Well, I did want to officially wish you a happy birthday, and Thank you. just say how much I enjoy working with you. You're a, a wonderful friend and coworker. You work really hard. You do your job really well. And you know, people think, oh, the Georgine Rice. Well, it doesn't just happen with me sitting behind a mic. You're you're doing a good portion of the work that makes. This program and so many others possible. Well, so you. on your forty something at the birthday, forty six. It's forty six. It's okay. No, I I just couldn't <clears> remember. <throat> okay, you know I'm old. I don't remember <laughs> things. Clark, right? That's the name. Yeah. Clark. Yeah. Anyway, your forty sixth birthday. Um, I just wanted to say happy birthday and let well, everybody you. know that you're a valuable uh, part of this family and a good friend. Thank you. Say, I feel the same. And and uh, thank you for the cake. Is that lemon? Yes. Oh, with a glaze. It's a lemon oh, pudding cake, moist. Y- you glaze can't do, on it. You can't do any better than that. My only concern is that you would uh, eat too much cake. So, as a true friend, which I've declared myself publicly to be, mm-hmm. I'm willing to sacrifice myself and have a piece that would spare you having to eat all of it. I'll give you a big piece. How okay, would you like that? Yeah, yeah, because right. it's a big friendship. So, I think <laughs> yeah, that, that absolutely. Work. All right. Well, there you have it. Clark's birthday, which, by the way, was last Thursday, the twentieth. Yeah, yeah. But we finally got around to yeah, it. Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Today on the program, we're going to talk with Than Newton. He is the author of In Search of the King: Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God. Now, Than Newton, or rather Than Bennett, his name might be familiar uh, to you. He is the Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice. He's occasionally on the program, so you might have heard his voice before. This is his first book. We'll talk with him. Uh, about it uh, later this hour. Then in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. 
actually invite him to be on the program because I like saying his name. He's the manager uh, and uh, the Election Law Reform Initiative and Senior Legal Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the federal judge that blocked President Trump's executive order on sanctuary cities. And we'll also talk with Curtis Houck. He's the managing editor of Newsbusters. Uh, Politico came out with a blockbuster investigative report on the Obama administration and the hidden elements of the Iran deal and the giveaway that the United States uh, was responsible for. We were told seven um, prisoners, seven people were released. It actually was 21, and some of them were really bad guys uh, with national security threats linked to them by the Obama Justice Department. So we'll talk uh, with Curtis Hauk about that, uh, and also the fact that it wasn't covered by the, the news networks. I, I guess that's not altogether surprising, but we'll get into that when he joins me later uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, the Trump administration officially outlined a sweeping tax reform plan today that calls for massive cuts for businesses and other changes that could yield big savings for American families. Now, the plan swiftly drew congressional criticism about the potential impact on the deficit, which is a legitimate concern, but administration officials voiced optimism that the proposal would, in fact, spur economic growth and said they'd reduce tax breaks um, elsewhere. Uh, We have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to do something really big, said the top White House economic advisor, Gary Cohen. He said the tax reform is long overdue. Well, tax reform certainly is long overdue. Whether or not this is the one that will eventually come remains to be seen. Well, as the administration nears the end of the first 100 days, Cohen and Treasury Secretary Steve Munn, uh, they provided the contours of the administration's long-awaited tax plan in a White House briefing with reporters. It was long on outlines, short on details, but they promised those would be coming. The plan would perhaps most significantly significantly slash the corporate tax rate from 35 to 15 percent. Small business owners could also benefit from that rate. The president is determined to unleash economic growth for business, Munchen said. Well, the plan also would collapse the income tax system from seven brackets to three, 10 percent, 25 percent and 35 percent. The current rate is 39.6 percent. The administration is looking as well to doubling the standard deduction or the amount of income individuals and families can report to the IRS tax-free. The current standard deduction would rise from $6,300 to $12,600 for individuals under the proposal. For married couples filing jointly, it would rise from $12,600 to roughly $24,000. Earlier in the day, Munchens called the biggest tax cut and the largest tax reform in the history of the country. While the plan will immediately face questions, Questions on Capitol Hill. That's what happens over the impact on the federal budget and the deficit, considering the tax cuts would presumably represent billions in lost revenue every year. Senate Finance Committee uh, ranking member Ron Wyden, you know, our own Ron Wyden, issued a statement calling it an unprincipled tax plan that will result in cuts for the one percent conflicts with the president's. Uh, with the president, rather, crippling debt for America and the crumbs for the working people, end quote. Now, this is all without much detail uh, that was in the plan. But officials said Wednesday they plan to eliminate most tax breaks that benefit high-income taxpayers. At the same time, they said popular tax breaks like the mortgage interest and charitable deductions would be preserved. With administration officials saying they want to get to work with Congress as soon as possible, a statement from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Speaker Paul Ryan, and other top GOP lawmakers said the principle outlined by the Trump administration today will serve as critical guideposts for Congress and the administration as we work together to overhaul the American tax system and ensure middle class families and job creators a better position for the 21st century. Well, the plan would also eliminate the estate tax that Republicans often deride as the death tax 
and the 3.8% tax on investment income under Obamacare. Again, details uh, were not available today, but we're told they are coming. Well, in a rare meeting, the Trump administration invited all 100 senators for a White House closed-door briefing on North Korea as Pyongyang parades its nuclear might and the U.S. considers action. President Trump's Secretary of State, Defense Secretary, Top General, and National Intelligence Director were on hand to lay out the North's escalating nuclear capabilities. And the president was expected to drop in on the Eisenhower Executive Office building gathering of of lawmakers, though it uh, wasn't certain. Past uh, efforts have failed to halt North Korea's unlawful weapons programs and nuclear and ballistic missile tests. The Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Secretary of Defense Jane Mattis, and uh, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coates said in a joint statement, with each provocation, North Korea jeopardizes stability in the Northeast Asia and poses a a, a growing and greater threat to our allies and the U.S. homeland. This was a A very rare, although not unprecedented, meeting in which all the senators were invited. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll tell you more about North Korea's weapons progress as the uh, top concern for U.S. senators in this rare briefing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. I need to put my cake aside, that rather large piece that uh, Clark (laughs) cut for me. I think I need three other people in here to finish that off, but thanks for sharing. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you've just joined us, we were celebrating Clark's birthday, which was actually last week uh, at the start of the program. We're talking about uh, U.S. senators, all 100 of which were invited to a special briefing on North Korea. Uh, while uh, North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, uh, has a reputation for bizarre behavior. The nuclear arsenal and the aspirations of the republic are being taken very seriously. North Korea has conducted five nuclear tests in the past 11 years, the last uh, several being the most destructive, and now they're threatening a sixth. Well, North Korea's official um, newspaper also said in a front-page editorial that its military is prepared to, and I quote, bring to closure the history of U.S. scheming and nuclear blackmail End quote. Well, the editorial said there is no limit to the strike power of the People's Army armed with our style of cutting edge military equipment, including various precision and miniaturized nuclear weapons and submarine launched ballistic missiles. Now, it is that miniaturized nuclear weapon that is the biggest concern of the United States and the rest of the world. They have expressed the intent to miniaturize a nuclear weapon. Thomas Caraco, who's the director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, it raises the stakes and increases the risk of missile threats uh, to the region and the United States homeland. North Korea would need that smaller nuclear weapon to deliver its its, uh, long distance. And according to The New York Times, is. A Dr. Hecker, a man who was uh, built his share of nuclear weapons, noted last week any weapon that could travel that far would have uh, have to be smaller, lighter and surmount the additional difficulties of this and the stresses rather and temperatures of a fiery reentry into the atmosphere. By most estimates, that is four or five years away. Then again, many senior officials uh, said the same four or five years ago made that same uh, that same statement. Well, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Joseph Dunford, and the Director of the National Intelligence uh, Agency Dan Coates uh, provided an update to senators on the North Korea situation this afternoon, a very rare gathering of uh, all of the senators. Whether they all, uh, they all attended is another matter, but all 100 were 
invited to participate in this classified briefing. Meanwhile, as North Korea is flexing its military muscles again this week, a closer look at images of the Hermit Kingdom soldiers reveal that the fighting force may be better suited for propaganda than actual battle. Well, on Tuesday, the South Korean military reportedly confirmed that Pyongyang was conducting a massive live-fire artillery drill. A top North Korean official warned that a brutal punishment awaits the so-called warmongers in the U.S. and elsewhere. The bluster is uh, not new, but this time it's compounded by rising international tensions. Well, North Korea typically puts on its more headla- uh, headline-grabbing display to make some sort of anniversary, and Tuesday was no exception. The artillery drills... Uh, come on the 85th anniversary of the founding of the nation's military. Less than two weeks ago, North Korea mounted both a failed ballistic missile test and a large military parade to mark the 105th birthday of the country's founder, Kim Il-sung, who's long passed. North Korea put a variety of new missiles on display during the April 15th parade, and while at least one of them was reportedly a prototype, some experts thought they spotted actual fakes. A closer look at some of the soldiers in that parade suggests those uh, missiles may not have been the only things that weren't quite battle ready. This was more about sending a message than being combat effective, says Michael Pregnant, who is a former Army intelligence officer with over 28 years experience working conflicts around the world and now an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. He uh, took a, a look at several photos of North Korean soldiers from the April 15th parade and immediately began poking holes in them. Um, Some of the most uh, memorable images to emerge from North Korea's dramatic parade feature the special operations commandos who were carrying what appeared to be AK-47s with grenade launching capabilities. There's just one problem, uh, he said. Where are the magazines? There's no place for the magazine to go on the mock grenade launcher. Uh, in the way that would be required, calling it a fake capability. It's also possible that the rifles are equipped with what's known as, uh, uh, I think it's Helical Magazine, which uh, organizes rounds in a spiral shape to maximize capacity. Uh, He went on to note that there is still a question of whether any of these rifles are actually loaded, as ammunition manufacturing is considered a serious issue for the isolated regime. Well, it goes on from there, but some question about uh, some of what we see not being Uh, exactly what we think we're seeing. Meanwhile, in rather absurd announcement, the United Nations warned the Trump administration earlier this year that repealing Obamacare without providing an adequate replacement would be a violation of multiple international laws. And though the Trump administration is likely to ignore the U.N. warning, the Washington Post reported the Office of the U.N. High Commission on on Human Rights in Geneva sent an urgent appeal on February 2nd. So now they're weighing in on uh, what... uh, U.S. officials decide to do or discontinue doing. Well, the Post reported that the confidential five-page memo cautioned that the repeal of the Affordable Care Act would put the U.S. at odds with its international obligations. The warning was sent to the State Department and reportedly said the U.N. expressed serious concern about the prospects of the prospective loss, rather, of health coverage for 30 million people. That, in turn, could violate the right to Social Security of the people of the United States. Congressional Republicans failed in March to pass the Obamacare replacement bill. A new proposal is emerging, but it's unclear when it might be considered and how sweeping it may be. A spokesman for the U.N. Human Rights Office in Geneva confirmed the authenticity of the letter, which was sent uh, by a um, Lithuanian doctor who serves the U.N. as special rapporteur. 
on the right of everyone to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. There's a mouthful. A spokesman for the U.N. said that uh, the doctor cannot comment on his Obamacare letter until it becomes public in June. And though the report calls out the Obama, the Trump administration, rather, there's uh, very little the U.N. can actually do which is what the U.N. is best at, doing very little. According to the report, the letter sent to the Trump administration also was supposed to be shared with the majority and minority leaders of both houses of Congress, but that did not happen. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi's office and Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer's office, also known as Chuck Schumer, uh, said they never received the letter, as did officials in um, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office. The letter from uh, the uh, good doctor did make it uh, its way to the Department of Health and Human Services, where an unnamed employee supposedly leaked it. So there you have it. Well, former President Barack Obama reportedly agreed to give a lucrative speech to Wall Street firm Cantor Fitzgerald LP. Oh, wait, I thought that was frowned upon. I mean, wasn't that a major issue for Hillary Clinton? Many are now pointing back to the 44th president's harsh criticism of the financial industry, including calling Wall Street bankers fat cats which may or may not be a compliment. I'm not entirely sure. Well, Charlie Gasparino, who's with the Fox Business Network, broke the story reporting that Obama's speaking fee will be $400,000. That's nearly twice as much as Hillary Clinton received for similar appearances. Gasparino said Obama had agreed to be the keynote speaker on health care at an event in September. On Fox and Friends, Kristen Kate, author of Government Gone Wild, said the speech would be the height of of hypocrisy after his harsh criticism of Wall Street. It's not surprising for a politician to cash out after they've uh, left office, but Democrats end up looking more hypocritical than Republicans because it's the Democrats who constantly rail against greedy rich bankers and rich business people, uh, said Tate. So uh, we'll see whether or not there's any coverage uh, on that is uh, somehow the uh, the former president betraying his uh, his earlier statements. My guess is we won't hear much about it. Uh, let's see. 30 minutes after four o'clock is the time. Up next, we're going to talk with Than Newton. He's the author of In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, everyone wants to live a life of meaning, and that desire sends some of us into a desperate search for someone or something that can meet that longing. We need only look at how people fawn over, well, celebrities and athletes and even Christian leaders trying to associate with something bigger than, well, ourselves. Fan Bennett brings to light our inability to satisfy our soul's longing and desire for a human king. He says we often serve uh, many things, earthly pursuits, indulgences, things that were created, but we are called to serve the creator. Well, in his debut book, In Search of the King, Turning Your Desire for Meaning into the Discovery of God, uh, he points readers to the scriptures to discover their true purpose, intimacy with the only king who can fulfill our every need. Well, Than Bennett and his wife uh, live in Fort Washington, Maryland, with their three children. He is the director of government affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice, with a particular focus on U.S. Congress and the United Nations. He's also a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio broadcast, J. Seculo Live, heard right here on KPDQ. He um, uh, is motivated to write uh, by a belief that God calls those in all walks of life to draw others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what he does in his book, In Search of the King, Turning Your Desire for Meaning into the Discovery of God. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Georgine, thank you for having me. Thanks for that introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're happy to have you here as well. Now, you work in, as I mentioned, with uh, Jay Seculo Live. You do work um, that is political in nature. And it might be surprising to our listeners to consider the subject matter you chose for your first book. It, it is surprising to a lot of people. It's surprising to publishers, too, Georgine, I have to say. Um, <laughs> You know, I, honestly, to, to be honest with you, this, the journey to write this book um, really started about 16 years ago. I was just getting started in public policy. I was new in Washington, D.C., and I felt that God was calling me to write for him. And um, just to be real candid with you, I argued with God, and I told him it didn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, I didn't. I, this was not my profession. I was not a pastor, um, and I was just getting started. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to, to write in a faith spectrum, but... Uh, Georgine, I'm grateful that for about the next 15 years, God really pursued me, and uh, he, he pursued this calling that he had to, to write. And I can tell you the date where I, I finally committed to uh, to beginning this project and to seeing it through. It was April 19, 2015. I was listening to a sermon uh, from my pastor, Mark Batterson, who actually ended up writing the foreword for mm-hmm. this book. And he was simply given a challenge. He said, oh, there's someone sitting here who knows the next thing that God has for them, and you just need to say one little yes. You need to do the thing in front of you, uh, commit to, to say one little yes and taking the next step. I had one little, one final argument with God that morning, Georgine. I, I said, well, God, I don't have time. And, and his response to me in, in what was about as close to the audible voice, voice of God that I've ever heard, he said, okay, can you give me one hour tomorrow morning for this, this thing that I've called you to? So I committed to give him an hour a day uh, for as long as it took. And here, uh, you know, two years later, it, it, it's on shelves. And uh, I'm thrilled. And it's really a work that began in me, though, and now it's out there for readers to read as well. Mm. You know, it would be easy to just move on and and get to the book, but I think you've made a really important point, because I'm guessing there are others who are listening today who may be where you were uh, back then when you were challenged by a sermon that your pastor gave. uh, And we might disqualify ourselves, well, I'm not this or I'm not that. I've never done that before. And yet God has has birthed an idea, and we're unwilling to move forward. And I think what you've just described challenges all of us to take seriously the call that God has on us and to move forward, even if it's one hour a day over a period of a couple of years. Well, to be honest with you, Georgine, I I honestly think the first thing that this book did was creating me an understanding of what true obedience is. Mm. And I've professed to be a believer for a long time. Um, but but a lot of times obeying the king, following after the king, ultimately finding out what his plan for your life is, uh, involves obeying on this side of understanding. It, it involves obeying when we are void of understanding, because his purpose is so much bigger than ours. His, his ways are so much larger than ours, and he sees the big picture. He knows what he's trying to accomplish through us. And, and that was something that I did not fully grasp. I'll, I'll just tell you quickly, that same morning, the, the other thing that I told God is, well, I don't know how to market a book. And he said, Sam, when did I ever say anything to you about marketing a <laughs> book? I told you to write the book. Now, are you going to obey or are you not going to mm. obey? So fortunately, by the grace of God, here's some 17 years after he first planted that, that seed in my heart, um, uh, it, it's come to fruition. But it took him chasing me, I have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like the end of the story, so <laughs> so good for yeah, you. Right. Now, the title of the book, In Search of the King, is a reference to the C.S. Lewis novel, The Horse and His Boy. A lot of our listeners will be familiar with that, but but bring others uh, up, to, up to date on that story and how it relates to this idea of searching for the king. Sure. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites. I joined a long line in that, I think. And, and mm-hmm. The Horse and His Boy is in the series, The Chronicle of Narnia. And there are a couple of stories that I have right up front in the introduction of my book 
Um, I'll just share one with you. It's, it's kind of the motivating, kind of the opening question of the book, if you will. It's a, yeah. it's a scene in the book where the main character, Shasta, is on horseback, and he is trying to reach the neighboring land of Archenland. And his mission is to warn the king there, King Loon, about an impending attack that is coming. And he, he faces a lot of dangers on the way, but long story short, he gets through the gates of Archenland just ahead of the advancing army, and he finds out, Georgine, that the king is not there. And it sets up this beautiful scene in the book where readers would expect Shasta to ask circumstantial questions, right? They would expect him to ask, why is the king not here? Or how will I possibly go on? But he doesn't ask how, and he doesn't ask why. He asks a directional question. He asks where. He asks, where is the king? And when he gets that answer, he just simply starts off in that direction. And for me, it was such an inspirational picture of how we should envision our life and our pursuit of the king. I think we get so tied up in asking the hows and the whys and the circumstantial questions, the questions based on evidence, when, Georgine, really there's only one thing we really need to know to chart a course for our daily lives, and it is, where is the king? If we can determine the location of the king, we already know that he is calling us to his side. He's calling us to closer intimacy with him. So if we can determine where he is, we know where our next step needs to be as well. So that kind of lays the foundation uh, for the rest of the book. Mm. In this search for the king, you make the point that this is not uh, about a destination. It's about a relationship. And that's a really important distinction. It, it absolutely is. And, and honestly, it goes back to where we started this conversation. I, I think there are certainly very specific things that God has called us to. And, and, and for me, you know, my profession is in the public policy space, and I think that is a very specific thing that he has called me to. But, uh, Georgine, that's almost secondary. The, the, the primary thing that God is after in my life, and I would argue the primary thing that God is after in your listener's life, is a relationship with him. It's a dialogue with him. It's a daily returning to him for for direction. So while there may be specific things that we are called to set our hands to, uh, I would argue, and I do argue in this book, and I think it's backed up over and over in Scripture, that the primary purpose for our existence on this earth is to glorify the King, it's to commune with the King, it's to interact with Him, it's to engage in that uh, walking in the gardens that you, that you saw with Adam and Eve, the original purpose uh, for man. So uh, while there are specific things we're to do, the primary thing that our Creator wants from us is our interaction with Him. Yeah, absolutely. Now you make the point in the book that not just believers who who identify who the King is and that there's only one, but people in general are searching for meaning. They're searching for a king to satisfy a longing that, that cannot be satisfied with the things that we tend to pursue outside of uh, faith. Uh, talk a little bit about um, those people and how this book um, really ministers to what they are longing for and how to, to find what they're looking for. Sure. I, I, you know, I think the main thrust of the book is to the for, for those of us that have already found the king and go a little bit deeper. But yes, you're you're absolutely right. That we are all searching, Georgine, and I think I actually don't think you would get much argument out there that you're going to get different names for it. Right? Some people are going to say we're searching for meaning or we're searching for purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, I kind of have a fun play on words. I say we're searching for an association with royalty, whether it's you know earthly power or a legacy beyond ourselves or whatever it may be. Uh, but in this book, I make the case that you can you can look through uh, all sorts of evidence and find that if you pursue anything else and you lay hold of it, you you actually accomplish it, you get what you're driving after, you are still going to have that void unless the one thing that you were after and the one thing that you laid hold of 
was a true relationship with the King of Kings. That is the only thing that is eternal. So for those folks out there that might resonate with, with what they hear me say in a longing for something greater than themselves, I would just encourage them. There is only one place that is worth spending their time, their energy, uh, and their resources on, on and actually achieving, and that's a relationship with the King of Kings. Because everything else that you might lay hold of, uh, you're going to find it, and then you're going to still uh, be found wanting. Yeah, yeah. Part of the reason I asked the question in the way that I did is I think sometimes believers, we see our walk of faith as a destination rather than a relationship, a yep. vital, ongoing, developing, deepening relationship. And if we um, if we think, well, I've already done that, I can move on to other things, and we're trying to satisfy what God intends to satisfy in us himself, uh, we, like those who are unbelievers, may still uh, find that we are wanting. Absolutely. And I would just say quickly, I know we're heading into a break, but that I would argue that that longing is specifically a good thing, Georgine. It's in us because it's what motivates us to pursue after him. So he's placed us there. Let's not suppress it. Let's channel it. Absolutely. We're going to continue our conversation in a few moments. Again, we're talking with Than Bennett. This is his first book, In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Than Bennett. He is the author of In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God. The book is really an act of obedience. His um, full-time job, he's a professional um, in the Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice. He's also a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio broadcast heard here on KPDQ, J. Seculo Live. So his voice may be familiar to you as well. Now, the book that we're talking about, In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God, is divided into three parts, the first being searching for the king. Um, what does that search look like? Georgine, the search for the king, part one of the book, that's really about the head knowledge of the king. That's the intellectual knowledge that is uh, what we might think of as a quiet time. It's a searching of the scriptures. It's a knowing about him. It's a knowing his words and his ways. And I would just say this, I mean, this book is is not a call out of that, because that is a critical foundation for our lives. It's something that we have to have if we want to move on to a discovery of Him and ultimately a service of Him. But, Georgine, I argue in this book, and I think there's a lot of evidence if you look around, that many of us, and I would place myself squarely in this camp for many years, we've turned that into the finish line. We think mm-hmm. that if we know His words and if we know His ways and if we know about Him in our head, that we've reached our goal. And, and I would just argue that that, is, that should be the foundation. I, I'm not content for that to be the end of our earthly story, because there's so much more uh, for us to be had. It, we do have to have it. It is critical, but it's a foundation, not the finish line. Yeah, foundation suggests that there's a structure that's going to be erected, um, and there's work to be done after that's been uh, laid. Now, the second part of the book is Discover the King, and you make a distinction between discovery over pursuit. Talk a bit about this part of our quest in discovering the king. Yeah, I think this is where it becomes tangible, Georgie, and I think this is where we, we learn to interact with the king on a daily basis. It's where we learn to actually go back to him and dialogue with him and then wait for his response to see what he's calling us into. It's about it's about participation, it's about conversation, it's about dialoguing. I think it's really about being more aware as we walk through our daily lives of what he is actually calling us to set our hands to. Yes, we do have to know his words in order to have that foundation to walk in the discovery, uh, but it's about all the examples that we see in Scripture of God actually speaking into man, and then man 
responding with action. It's not just about learning about him. It's about putting it into action. And honestly, if we're going to do that, there has to be constant interaction with him. And I think, at least for me, uh, this is the piece that for so long, this is the step for so long that I had failed to take. Mm. Two of the chapters in this uh, section of the book are on the king's power and surrender, which I appreciate because it puts us in the context of not just walking alone and, and you know, following a certain set of rules. But again, it's an emphasis on that relationship that as we surrender, we are empowered by him to do the very things that he's calling us to. That, that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the stories in the book um, is about Elijah and how he, he went, when he was confronted with the 400 prophets of Baal, uh, he really laid a, a foundation, George, and he set a stage for God to show up. And if God didn't show up, Elijah was going to look silly. He was going to look foolish. He was going to look crazy. He was going to look insane. And, and you know, I'm not suggesting that all of us should go out and, and call on God to call down fire. If we're going to call for that, we better be sure that that's what yeah. God wants us to do. But, Georgine, if we know that's what God is calling us to do, we have to be willing to do it. We have to be willing to look a little bit crazy for the king. We have to be willing to look a little bit insane. But if we're hearing from God, and that's what he calls us to do, we, we need to be willing to do it. And the third part of your uh, book, the third section, um, it's titled Serve the King, Choosing Service. Uh, talk a bit about that aspect of our relationship, our walk with the king. You know, I think this is where it gets exciting. And, and honestly, this is ultimately the goal. I think a life of service, a life serving as, in part, as part of the royal priesthood should be the goal of all Christians. And I would just I would just argue that the, the royal part of that is probably very easy for us. We want to associate with royalty, but we're not so sure about that priesthood part, because the priesthood heart part uh, involves service. And, and honestly, I think the most concise picture of this, and it's in the book, but the most concise picture is that very familiar conversation that Jesus had with Peter, where Peter is trying to understand how he convinces Jesus that he loves him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Peter, feed my sheep. And to be honest with you, Peter's not satisfied. I I read that passage, Georgine, and I think it sounds like Peter's willing to feed the sheep, right? But what he really wants is more of Jesus. And three times, Jesus comes back to Peter and says, no, Peter, if you want to show me that you love me, I need you to feed my sheep. And it's this idea that the king, the king we are trying to find, the king we are trying to serve, he doesn't distinguish between service to him and service to his people. If we are serving his people and serving the, loving on the people that are around us, we will be serving and loving him. And if we can just open our eyes up to that concept, Georgine, we won't have any trouble finding the king because opportunities to serve his people are literally all around us every day as we walk up and down the street. Mm, isn't, that the, isn't that the truth? But we are so much... Uh, like Peter, in that the Lord tells us uh, something specific, and yet we're just sure there's some, <laughs> there's something else. He sp- yeah. spoke directly to him, looking him in the face, and yet Peter, well, you know, uh, that's right. so Question so like times, us. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes we need that three times have a thing repeated before we really accept what he's saying, and then are willing to walk in it. That's right. And actually, there's a story in the book, just very quickly, and right up in front in chapter one, of, of a specific example of how for 10 years I had worked in the same building, walked up and down the same street every day for 10 years, and had not noticed an individual who was living on that street and who clearly had needs. I didn't know his name. I didn't know his background. I didn't know uh, what he needed. I had a colleague join my office, and within two weeks of him being here, he knew this man's name. And actually, during an encounter that we had with him, I realized that he was actually wearing my colleague's clothes. I knew they were his clothes because I'd seen him stacked and folded in his office a few days prior. 
And I, I nearly wept, Georgine, because what I realized in that moment mm. is that for 10 years, I had been missing an opportunity to interact with the king. It had taken my new colleague all of two weeks to recognize the opportunity to see the king and this man and then to meet his needs. Mm. Oh, that we would have such eyes to see and ears to hear that it wouldn't take us so long. And I think all of us have examples of failing to see what's right in front of us or failing to hear what's being spoken clearly. Absolutely. And, and I think engaging right where we are is where it starts, because, again, we don't have to go searching for these opportunities. If we open our eyes and look at the world through a slightly different lens, look at it through a, a lens of, of service, one that, that views these opportunities as service, as opportunities to interact with the King, we don't have to go anywhere else to find them. We can serve right where we're planted. And, you know, I, I have evidence of this because I work in the political sphere. And if you think that that is a, is a place that is sometimes a void of light, uh, it, it certainly is. And yet there are opportunities all around me every day. Absolutely. And I've started to be made aware of them. What do you hope your readers will um, will come away with in, in Search of the King? Uh, greater intimacy with the King, Georgine, it, it really is as simple as that. I mean, we've, we've talked about this continuum, right, how the book is broken down into three phases, searching, discovering, and serving. And I would just argue that no matter where you're out at on that spectrum, the answer is the same. The answer is to turn and face the King and to try to draw a little bit closer to Him each and every day. And just quickly, I would say, you know, when I started writing this book, I, I sort of arrogantly assumed that I was going to be writing it from the service end of that spectrum, you know, sort of looking back on all that I have learned and imparting my wisdom. And what I realized as I wrote this, it was like a, a giant mirror for my soul. And I realized that there were areas in each of these three parts where I was desperately void of not only understanding, but then also practical application. So what I hope a reader will walk away of is just an honest assessment of where they are and then the encouragement and the comfort of knowing that the only thing that they have to do to remedy some of those uh, shortcomings is to, to, to locate the king, to, see, to ask what he is calling them into, and then to turn and face him and to walk in, in obedience towards him. Well, I can say you have accomplished your goal, and I appreciate your taking the time mm-hmm. to talk with us about it here today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it, Georgine. Thank you. Again, Fan Bennett, the author of In Search of the King, Turning Your Desire for Meaning into the Discovery of God. The book is published by Worthy. In the next hour of the program, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's the, uh, a manager. He's also the Election Law Reform Initiative and Senior Legal Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the federal judge that has blocked the president's executive order on sanctuary cities. And we'll talk with Curtis Houck. He's a managing editor of Newsbusters. That's an online publication of the Media Research Center. Politico came out with a blockbuster investigative story about the uh, Obama administration's hidden giveaway as part of that Iran deal. Politico, of course, isn't some right-leaning publication. Anyway, we'll talk about why the, the networks chose not to cover it at all. That coming up. After news and traffic, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. If you're just joining us, welcome. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend producing, although he engineered portions as well. Well, this hour, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager uh, of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow with the 
uh, Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. That's quite a mouthful. And the uh, uh, we're going to be talking about the federal judge that blocked President Trump's executive order on sanctuary cities yesterday. We're also going to talk with Curtis Houck. He's the managing editor of Newsbusters, which is an online um, publication of the Media Research Center. Uh, Politico, you may or may not be aware of because it wasn't really covered, uh, came out with a blockbuster investigative story about uh, the president's hidden Iran deal giveaway instead of uh, the uh, major uh, news networks decided that they were going to cover and gush over the president's first public speech since entering public life. And this was uh, quite, as I mentioned, a blockbuster story. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that, who covered it, who didn't, what they chose to cover instead, and what this uh, political story actually told us. Well, when Donald Trump stood in the lobby of Trump Tower in June of 2015 and announced he was running for president, he told all who were listening, mark his words. He said, I would do various things very quickly. I would repeal and replace the big lie Obamacare. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words, end quote. Well, 15 months later, after he won the Republican nomination, less than two months before his general election showdown, Trump released a letter to pro-life leaders. As we head into the final stretch of the campaign to help the leaders like you is essential to ensure that pro-life voters know where I stand and also know where my opponent Hillary Clinton stands. I am committed, Trump said, to defunding Planned Parenthood as long as they continue to perform abortions and reallocating their funding to community health centers that provide comprehensive health care for women. In his inaugural address, Trump didn't back away from his pledge to secure the border. We will uh, bring back our borders, he vowed. Three days later, he used executive authority to reinstate the Mexico City policy, which denies federal funding to organizations that provide or promote abortions abroad. Of course, we don't do that with Planned Parenthood. They provide them here. But he needed a congressional action to defund Planned Parenthood at home and a congressional appropriation to begin building that wall. He said he would ultimately uh, fund uh, find funding for by Mexico. Well, a week after Trump's inauguration, Vice President Mike Pence told the March for Life that Trump would keep his pro-life promises with the help of the newly elected Republican majority pro-life Congress. Life is winning again in America, the vice president said. That is evident in the election of pro-life majorities in the Congress of the United States of America, he said. But it is um, no more evident in any way than in the historic election of a president who stands for a stronger America, a more prosperous America, and a president who, I proudly say, st- say um, yes, stands for the right to life. Uh, president Donald Trump, again, quoting the vice president speaking at the March for Life. Uh, I'd like to say that over um, there at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we are in the promise keeping business. Close quote. Well, the question is whether or not defunding Planned Parenthood will make it through this budgeting process, which expires uh, at uh, Friday at midnight. Uh, We know now that the wall will be postponed, but whether or not funding for Planned Parenthood will remain a priority in this budget cycle Well, it appears at this point it's not likely. According to the Congressional Research Service, the Government Accountability Office determined that Planned Parenthood Federation of America affiliates receive $400.56 million in Medicaid reimbursements in both federal and state dollars in 2012. Their affiliates, according to the Government Accounting Office, also spent $64.35 million in federal Title uh, 10 funding in 2012. And when the House Republican leaders this year put together their weak and redistributionist reconciliation bill to repeal and replace Obamacare and included language that would have denied Medicaid money to Planned Parenthood for just one year, 
But it would not have denied Title X money to Planned Parenthood because reconciliation bills do not deal with discretionary spending like that doled out under Title X. When principled House conservatives opposed that Obamacare bill, the Republican leadership did not bring, a, bring it up for a vote. And now Congress faces an April 28th deadline. Friday night to pass a new government funding bill. I can do that in a couple of ways we discussed yesterday. There is currently no talk that it will include language to prohibit funding of Planned Parenthood. That's very disappointing for pro-lifers. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the end of the story, but one would have hoped, given, uh, as the vice president put it, the overwhelming majority of pro-lifers in Washington and elsewhere across the country, this would be the time to do it. Here's a little perspective. Although President Donald J. Trump promised to defund Planned Parenthood if elected president and the GOP House and Senate often claim that they want to defund the group, there reportedly is no language in the continuing resolution to fund the government through next September to defund Planned Parenthood, the group that has performed approximately 81,567 abortions since Trump's inauguration on January the 20th. These are 81,567 distinct individuals created in the image of God whose life was ended for profit. That's about 877 abortions a day, 36 an hour, or one every two minutes. We're talking about Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion provider in the United States. In its latest annual report from 2014-2015, Planned Parenthood reported a total of $1.29 billion, of which $553.7 million came from government health service grants and reimbursements, i.e. taxpayers, you and me, assuming you pay your taxes. The same report revealed that Planned Parenthood performed 323,999 abortions in 2014-2015. The annual report for 2013-2014 showed that Planned Parenthood did 327,653 in 2012-2013, 327,166 abortions. No year fell below 320,000. And the number just keeps climbing. Well, take the average of those three years, and it equals 326,272 abortions per year. That average uh, averages out to about 27,189 abortions per month, 877 abortions per day, 36 an hour, and about one every two minutes. This program is two hours long. A lot happens in those two hours. Since Donald Trump was inaugurated as president, Planned Parenthood has performed approximately 81,567 abortions. That's from January 20th to April the 23rd. That number is higher today and will be even higher tomorrow and the day after that. The question is, will defunding Planned Parenthood remain a priority for this pro-life Congress? Uh, Allie Allie Nielsen points out that there's a lot of media hype around this science march. It ignored any dissent, which is what science is about. Discovery, dissent, examination. She writes that for a supposedly nonpartisan event, science march coverage was decidedly one-sided. I mention this because while the science march was last weekend, there's a climate march which is connected this coming weekend. Following the March for Science on Earth Day, April 22nd, ABC, CBS, NBC Evening News spent eight minutes positively covering the event. None of the broadcasts mentioned or interviewed the many actual scientists who denounced the march. They didn't include any dissenting views of the event at all. They also portrayed the march dominated by scientists, not activists, without proof. And it was dominated by activists rather than scientists. Science March coverage led the CBS Weekend News anchor Renee 
Uh, Nina, and she, a declared scientist, take to the streets to raise awareness over a clip of former stand-up comedian Bill Nye carrying a sign. That's misleading, since Nye is an engineer, not a scientist. He originally became the science guy from a comedy routine on um, Saturday Night Live. CBS chief medical correspondent, uh, Dr. John LaPook, he said the march was billed as a nonpartisan defense of science, but some strongly attacked the policies of the administration. Oh, really? It ended up being a political event? Weekend News then showed three graphics listing out participant complaints like National Institutes of Health budget cuts and immigration restrictions, which isn't science. NBC Nightly News and ABC World News Tonight also hyped the supposed nonpartisan nature of the event, but admitted that many attendees were decidedly anti-President Donald Trump. The objective was a nonpartisan endorsement of fact-based science research. The ability many of the march uh, marches criticized the president. Uh, the reality many of the marchers criticized the president. NBC Nightly News um, anchor Jose Diaz Balart. ABC News uh, correspondent Gloria Rivera. She. Uh, meanwhile, highlighted multiple anti-Trump signs from the march, despite it being called nonpartisan. I don't know how you keep those two things going at the same time. And while the networks admitted the political direction of the event, they ignored stated opposition from the scientific community and described the march as if it were comprised entirely of actual scientists, touting this um, oft-quoted consensus that really does not exist. ABC's Rivera said tens of thousands of scientists and supporters were marching, while NBC's Ballard claimed scientists left the labs and lined the streets from New York to Los Angeles, from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. NBC chief environmental affairs correspondent Ann Thompson, meanwhile, said scientists did uh, scientists rather did what does not come naturally. They marched. Well, not many of them actually marched. I would just hope for more accurate careful coverage, and that uh, perhaps those who didn't march and oppose the uh, core issues might have been referenced at least once. Up next, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and the senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about the judge who blocked President Trump's executive order on sanctuary cities. Does it have merit? We'll find out in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a federal judge in San Francisco, no surprise there, has blocked the president's order to withholding funding from communities that limit cooperation with U.S. immigration authorities. U.S. District Judge William Oreck, he issued a temporary ruling uh, yesterday in a lawsuit over the executive order targeting so-called sanctuary cities. Now, the decision will stay in place while the lawsuit moves through the court. Uh, there was some disagreement over the scope of the ruling. San Francisco, Santa Clara interpreted it very uh, broadly and said that they were threatened to lose billions of dollars in federal funding. The attorney for the Justice Department said it applied to a limited set of grants and only about a million dollars at that. Well, here to talk with us about all of this, this order and the judge who made it, is Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager in Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Happy to do it. You write that once again, um, the Obama judge goes outside the law and prior precedent and interferes in the president's and specifically the attorney general's discretion over the awarding of grants for law enforcement purposes. Let's start at the beginning. What is it that this uh, this judge has ruled against the announcement, which was more of a political statement than a change of, uh, of policy? It simply stated that the, the administration intended to enforce the law. What is it that this judge objected to? And uh, what is it that these two 
uh, municipalities objected to? Well, actually, I think the judge uh, totally misinterpreted the executive order and, in fact, uh, bought into this exaggerate, the exaggerated claims that Santa Clara and San Francisco was, was doing. What I mean by that is if you look at the exact language of the executive order, um, the, the judge interpreted it as if it was saying that the Trump administration was going to cut off all access to all federal funding to sanctuary cities. So that would include entitlement payments, things like, you know, Medicaid dollars or highway transportation funds, uh, all, all, all those kinds of federal programs. That's not what the executive order said. What the executive order said was that um, the Justice Department and the Department of Homeland Security would cut off eligibility for the discretionary grants that those departments give to local uh, communities. Those are grants that cities and towns have to actually apply for. It's intended to improve their law enforcement programs. And it, it's already um, a condition, for example, of the Justice Department programs that the local jurisdictions have to certify that they're in compliance with all federal laws. So the, the judge basically just misread this and instead, um, you know, issues, issues an injunction for something that the uh, Justice Department wasn't actually, in t- or the Trump administration wasn't actually intending to do, which was cut off funding for all for all of this uh, different kinds of federal programs. So essentially, he dreams up harms that might befall San Francisco and Santa Clara, uh, these sanctuary jurisdictions uh, who filed suit. Um, now, is this a, a simple matter? And this is perhaps speculation, but is it a simple matter of the judge? misunderstanding the intent. It was so poorly written that it wasn't clear that it was, this was simply a statement that we are going to enforce the law, something the previous administration didn't do in this area. Or was there perhaps more behind it? I mean, was it so unclear, difficult to decipher, if you will, uh, that it's reasonable that this judge would have misunderstood its intent? Uh, no, I don't think so. The, the paragraph at issue in this lawsuit is very short, and it's, it's very clear. And um, I, I actually don't see how you could read it to come to the conclusion that the judge did or, or the conclusions that San Francisco and Santa Clara were pushing them to. It very specifically, for example, uses the word grants. It doesn't use the word, you know, federal funding. It uses the word grants. That's a very specific word. Everyone in Washington knows what that means, uh, that uh, grants are discretionary uh, funds. They are not the kind of money that that comes through Medicaid Mm -hmm. and other kinds of eligibility programs. And it says this is limited to the Attorney General and the Secretary of Homeland Security. So again, there's no way the judge could, uh, frankly, reasonably read that to also apply to grants by every other executive agency, which is apparently what he did. I know this is not what you do, but I want to speculate that the judge was attempting to embarrass the White House. They rolled out this executive order with great fanfare. He um, ascribes to candidate Trump uh, almost legal utterances when he makes reference to uh, an effort to address certain immigration concerns that were made before he was even elected, he was a candidate, and certainly before he was the president of the United States. Is it possible that a federal judge who's an a, a, a Obama appointee who happens to have been a, a bundler f- um, for the president uh, and a, a former Justice Department uh, employee, uh, that this might be motivated by something other than attempting to apply with great diligence and care uh, the law? 
I, unfortunately, I, I think that may be the case. Because, again, I, like I said, I, I don't think the judge's interpretation of the executive order is reasonable. It's it's hard for me to believe that he's an incompetent lawyer. Your only other choice is that he's biased uh, against the president and the president's policies, which is why you get this. I mean, I'll give you another example. If you look at this 50-page order, um, he cites... Uh, statements by the president and by the attorney general that he says indicate that um, this executive order was actually going to be much more broadly applied. But when you actually look at the statements he cites, again, I don't see how you can interpret them in the way that the judge is saying that he that that he uh, he's interpreting them. So what happens now? Um, obviously, this has to be settled in the courts, but where does it go and, and how does this ultimately get resolved? Well, I'll tell you something that's kind of interesting is that um, a lot of folks, a lot of news reports actually, I think, are misle- uh, misreading the injunction. Because while he did issue uh, an injunction saying uh, this can't be applied to all kinds of federal funding in general, he then puts in this exception specifically for grants um, given out by the Justice Department and Homeland Security uh, that require compliance with federal law. So, so actually, <laughs> I, I think, I think that justice uh, is actually going to be able to go ahead and do what it has been intending to do, which is cut off uh, 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 eligibility for these grants. So, what then would be the purpose of this judicial theatrics? Um, because, as you just described, it doesn't do what it purports to do, and certainly what is being reported as it having done. Well, like I said, I, I think it was a way of, of once again giving a black eye to the Trump administration uh, because that's the way it's painted in the mainstream media and, and elsewhere. Um, I, I do think this will give an incentive to Congress to actually act to potentially cut off access to uh, different kinds of entitlement programs. That They can do that. They've done it before. You may recall uh, back when we were raising the drinking age across the country from 18 to 21, um, Congress passed a law that said that each state that didn't do that would lose 5% of its highway trust fund share. That went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, yeah, Congress could do that. They could put that kind of condition on it. And I think Congress needs to seriously think about a similar provision against sanctuary cities. Well, one would hope anyway. Hey, thank you so much for uh, for helping to clarify this ruling and what's likely to happen next. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Anytime. Hans von Spakovsky is manager, election law reform initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with Curtis Houck. He's the managing editor of Newsbusters. Politico came out with a blockbuster investigative story about the uh, the president's hidden Iran deal giveaway. You probably don't know anything about it because, as Mr. Houck will point out, ABC, CBS, NBC, the major news networks, they didn't cover it. Instead, they gushed over the president's first public speech since entering private life. We'll talk with him about that in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, Politico came out with a blockbuster investigative story about the president, former president Barack Obama, his hidden Iran deal giveaway. What's that? You never heard anything about it? Well, this came out on Monday. But instead of covering the story, the major news networks, the networks were instead gushing over former President Obama's first public speech since entering private life. Well, this expose was rather shattering, although I suppose for those of us who followed it closely, not altogether surprising. The fact that the networks chose to cover something else, look, there's nothing to see here, look over there, is also not particularly surprising. Well, here to talk with us about it is Curtis Houck. He's the managing editor of Newsbusters, and it's a pleasure to have you with us. Good to be with you. Well, uh, again, I, I think it's probably an alt- not altogether surprising that the uh, the networks didn't cover what was a <laughs> a really significant news story. But help us understand what they chose to do instead. I mean, one would assume in order to avoid covering a bombshell like this one, there had to be another big story to take its place, to merit uh, not covering uh, this particular thing. Yeah, I know, right? Exactly. Okay, so instead of covering, you know, this this political story involved Barack Obama and the Barack Obama administration, but instead of talking about this, they talked about Barack Obama, the former president. Um, you had CNN on uh, Monday, I guess, when it was, or uh, when they when he spoke, marveling at, the, oh my gosh, there he is, he's getting out of his motorcade, you know, walking down the street, and you know, uh, it's the same sort of stuff we saw in 2008. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised about it, but we kind of, you know, it nonetheless is. Um, uh, you had CBS Evening News on Monday saying the man who never lost a presidential election made his first major appearance since leaving office. Uh, in the words, yeah, in the words of Scott Pelley, it's uh, this infatuation is continuing, and the fact that they're suppressing a story that uh, was from Politico, which is not a conservative, it's, right? Uh, part of the liberal cop media cog, uh, kind of shows another level of, I guess, sinisterism, uh, sinister behavior. That there is occasionally good work done on these by these outlets, but then when it is done, they do all the they do their best to bury it as much as they can. The editors, um, one and the reporters who've done all this work, uh, go to publication, and the people who decide what goes where and what gets on TV um, and prime places on websites decided that stories like this were not important. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, your um, associate, Scott Whitlock, wrote a piece on the Media Research Council um, Center's uh, Newsbusters uh, page and writes that the political senior senior investigative reporter Josh Meyer, who authored this more than 7,300-word bombshell, showed that the uh, president secretly released 21 Iranian prisoners, not the seven originally claimed. They said, yeah, we're releasing prisoners. There are only seven of them. But there were actually 21, and these were men who were deeply involved in Iran's missile and nuclear program. And uh, they just decided, CBS, ABC, NBC, this really wasn't something the American people uh, needed to know or would want to know about. Um, The interview is, at least a portion of it, is uh, in this uh, very article. Uh, Meyer appeared on uh, Fox News Happening Now, and that's really the only place where uh, the issue was covered. And he write, or he said, I guess, during this interview, the Obama administration, when they rolled this out, said there were seven people uh, they were releasing as part of a deal of four or five Americans. But there were really 21. There were seven people in the United States, either convicted or awaiting trial on charges, and then 14 fugitives. And besides downplaying the number, they also downplayed the severity of the charges. Many of these guys were high on the list of U.S. counterproliferation effort to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. And ABC, CBS, NBC decided, uh, there's there's nothing to see here. 
Right. Yeah. And in, in a lot of the times you would hear pushback from uh, producers and anchors and in interviews, you know, when they, when they are occasionally asked about just more broadly, why aren't certain things covered? And um, they say, well, you know, it's really compressed and there's, we only have so much time. Well, <laughs> you know, you think about it in the case of the morning shows, for example, you had ABC, uh, Good Morning America and CBS this morning, each are two hour long shows. So that's pretty long. And then the Today Show just goes on and on and on. It's like four hours. Uh, so it's not like um, you don't have 30 seconds to spare or something like that to talk about this story. Um, and that's really all we're asking. We're not asking for like 20 minutes, you know. We, we, it, those of us here at Newsbusters, we know the constraints and we know about how right. long a lot of these stories are, like two, three minutes. And that's all, and that's usually what we're asking. But no, you don't have time for that. And as you laid out, you know, you've got 7,300 words in this story to choose from. And yet on a Fox News appearance, he was able to boil it down to that paragraph you just read, which um, I found interesting that while he uh, very thoroughly laid out what the Obama administration did, he won't use the word lie. They'll, they'll use that word with this administration, but they won't say that about anything the Obama administration has done, because that's what this is. That they lied to the American people that these were the conditions of this Iran nuclear deal. And, and beyond the fact that there was a lie, and I think that's the right word to apply in this case, there are national security issues uh, here. We're not just talking about, well, something happened and you weren't told. There are implications to releasing these 21, some more than others, uh, this was a lengthy, well-sourced political story. It goes into to greater detail, and that simply was uh, decided uh, or decided by the networks to be of so little importance they didn't bother to mention it at all. Yeah, no, it's and it's it's fascinating, kind of, to see what the networks think is a priority and what's not. Um, they'll go for these stories that you know, are really easy to cover, you know, they'll talk about cat videos or, you know, latest fashion trends or how to make a duct tape wallet, you know, but but they won't talk about stories like this. And yet you have these same people that work for these same networks have events like a few weeks ago at the museum here in Washington, D.C., where they uh, bemoan the, uh, the lack of substance in this administration and how poisonous everything is. Um, you guys are in control. You are the ones who set the agenda uh, and tell uh, and want to tell us what you think about. And if all you're talking about is this garbage instead of actual things like the Saran story, it's really on you. It's not really on us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Well, I so appreciate um, your bringing this to our attention, um, the political article, as well as the, the fact that the networks uh, chose not to cover this at all. And our listeners who are interested in following more of your coverage, you can go to newsbusters.org uh, for that. And I would uh, highly recommend the site for great insight on what the networks are doing or, in this case, failing to do. Mm-hmm. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Curtis. No problem. Anytime. Have a great night, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. By the way, uh, here's some of the disclosures of these individuals who were left, uh, let go. Not the seven, but the 21. Includes the seven, but it certainly exceeds them. In reality, the political uh, column says some of them were accused by Obama's own Justice Department of posing threats to national security. But somehow, under these circumstances, that threat is of little interest or concern. Three allegedly were part of an illegal procurement network supplying Iran with U.S.-made microelectronics with applications in surface-to-air and cruise missiles like the kind Tehran test-fired recently, prompting a still-escalating exchange of threats with the Trump administration. So there are implications to the following uh, administration, in this case, Trump. Another was serving an eight-year sentence for conspiring to supply Iran with satellite technology 
technology and hardware. As part of the deal, U.S. officials even dropped their demand for $10 million that a jury said the aerospace engineer illegally received from Tehran. The biggest fish, though, was Syed Abul Fazl Shahab Jamili, or something very like that, who had been charged with being part of a conspiracy that from 2005 to 2012, now count the years here, uh, procured thousands of parts with nuclear applications for Iran via China. That included hundreds of U.S.-made sensors for the uranium enrichment centrifuges in Iran, whose progress had prompted the nuclear deal talks in the first place. Um, so we're, we're not talking about guys who are just, you know, into uh, robbing liquor stores. We're talking about really bad guys whose um, offenses uh, have national security implications. And I don't just make that up. That's what Obama's own Justice Department uh, said about um, about some of these guys. So the fact that the networks chose uh, not to cover it, but instead covered, oh, here his leg is emerging from the vehicle and he's going to walk to the doorway in mere moments, um, tells you a little bit of uh, something about their Uh, about their priorities. And I won't go into what they choose to cover uh, politically under this current administration. But again, yet another example of why there's so much frustration with the mainstream media, that their likability and believability numbers are down dramatically. And people, I think, are waking up. Look, we want to know what's uh, what's going on in this country. We want serious information uh, and making a wallet out of duct tape. I don't know. It just doesn't really interest me as much as I suppose it does those who anchor said programs. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we do, we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. I'm sorry, you, uh, you're not privy to what I am, sitting in the studio looking through the glass into the engineer's booth where um, James Blend is, well, he's getting down. It wasn't pretty. Well, this is our final segment, and I wanted to end on a high note. Well, sort of a high note. Well, I guess, honestly, it's a note that could be high. On the other hand, we could all be disappointed and in the depths of despair as it relates to the weather. Well, according to KGW News, and rightly so, residents here in the Rose City, we're weathering a very bleak spring. Now, by bleak, what I mean is we've had lots and lots and lots of rain. That was preceded by lots and lots and lots of rain in May. I should say in February or March and then February as well. Got to get my month straight here. So residents here in the Portland metro area and beyond have been weathering a very bleak, wet spring. But hope could be peeking out from behind the rain clouds next week. This is according to Rod Hill, who's a meteorologist with KGW. Now, just stop and think about that for a moment. We could actually have a visitation by the sun who that is not obscured by the clouds and no moisture in sight. Well, the winter here in the uh, Pacific Northwest was a true Northwest winter, and uh, we have weathered it as champions. We've had a soggy spring, and, um, well, it's been a bit tough for some of us. I was having a conversation yesterday with a friend who has been in the Pacific Northwest uh, for many, many, many years now. She said this is the first time the rain has really started to get to her, and that's probably true of others as well. Well, here's the, here are the numbers. Since March the 1st, the start of the meteorological spring— you try to say meteorological. That's a, that's a tough one. Portland has seen rain 47 out of 57 days, and don't we know it. And the spring surplus of water stands at 5.39 inches, which is more than six weeks of extra rain in less than 60 days. I understand that beginning tomorrow or maybe even today, the Columbia River is approaching flood stage through the, uh, through the weekend. 
Well, since October 1st, the National Weather Service has measured 45.5 inches of rain at Portland International Airport, making it the second wettest winter in the city in more than 75 years of record keeping. Wet, wet, wet. Well, the city has also had the most days of rain ever, with 145 days of wet stuff since October the 1st. The wettest 145 days ever. This year's February was also the wettest on record with 10.356 inches of rain. I don't know what 356 inches is, but nonetheless, 10.356 inches of rain. Well, those are numbers that, um, well, have depressed a lot of uh, folks in our community. But I've got good news for you. Next Tuesday could begin, let me emphasize, could, imagine that in bold letters, underline, italicize, could, don't get your hopes up, balance your expectations, could Begin a stretch of the decent weather Portlanders have been craving, have longed for. Do you remember last summer how incredibly hot and dry it was? It was remarkable. It was like living in Florida or Santa Barbara. I have no idea what the weather is like in Santa Barbara, but it's in California, so it must be warm. Anyway, you might have a vague recollection of those yesterdays, months gone by. Well... Uh, They say uh, forecast models are indicating that the strongest possibility in months of a change to drier, warmer weather is just on the horizon. If those models are correct, and they aren't always, next week could see four or more dry, sunny days in a row. (laughs) I know. I hope you weren't doing anything dangerous. I hope you're not holding a knife preparing for a meal because this is so shocking you could cut yourself. If you're driving, I hope you didn't swerve off the road because this is a marvelous announcement that could, bold, italicized, underline, could, balance your expectations, uh, provide for us four consecutive days that are dry. But not only dry, they tell us that these days could also be, ladies and gentlemen, sunny. With temperatures reaching, pull over if you need to, sit down, put the knife down, back away, 80 degrees. How long has it been, and I haven't done the math on this one, how long has it been since we have enjoyed 80 degree weather in the Portland metro area? I just I feel the warm glow just talking about it. So next week, beginning with Tuesday, things could change and we can only hope for the better. My backyard is so soggy. I really need to reseed some areas. But you take a step and you just, you know, you're a half an inch into the mud that used to be the grass that that needs to be replaced. So anyway, that's the good news. A week of hope. That's what what KGW's uh, meteorologist Rod Hill said. A week of hope coming up after wet, dreary weather. So let's uh, let's hope for the best, but expect well the usual. We do live in uh, in the Portland metro area after all, and that's uh, Southwest Washington to our our cousins on the other side of the uh, of the Columbia. Well, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a um, conversation with David Brog. Now, James, we've rescheduled this conversation. Has it been three times? Two, three times? He's uh, he's pondering. Third time's the charm on this one. Third time's the charm. So we have announced that we're having a conversation with David Brog. This will be the third time, and we are hopeful that this time it's actually going to happen. It's kind of like that warm, sunny weather I just announced is coming on Tuesday. It may or may not arrive, but I've made the announcement. But the expectation is on Thursday, David Brog will join us. He's the author of Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. The book is published by Regnery, and he will be with us at the usual time, about 4.30 on tomorrow's program. And then on Friday, uh, we are going to uh, lighten up and cover some of the news that we wouldn't normally cover in the course of a week, where we focus our attention, for the most part, on more serious news. And isn't there a lot to... uh, 
to ponder, to talk about, to consider. Um, I hope you are, that you remain. I want to presume that we're all praying people if we're followers of Christ, that you are praying people because our leaders desperately need insight and wisdom, uh, sometimes restraint. I, I don't know even sometimes how to pray, but we need to be praying for those who are in authority over us. And Ephesians says that we'll live, live peaceable lives, us and our neighbors. We just want to be able to carry out what our primary uh, responsibilities are, the privilege of being ambassadors of Christ. And so as we are praying for our own communities, perhaps our neighborhoods, our, our um, state, our region, the country, the rest of the world, there's so much going on and there's so much vitriol around it all. Uh, there's a tremendous opportunity for us certainly to fall into the same vein, but a tremendous opportunity for us to choose to respond differently to be, oh, I don't know, what uh, what analogy might, salt and light, maybe that's a good way to describe what we might be, to choose to respond differently, not in despair, wringing our hands, uncertain about the future, because we know enough about the future that's revealed in Scripture that we can sigh a great sigh of relief. We can live in peace, even though difficult times may be coming. We know about North Korea. We know that they're um, in Berkeley, we've got uh, challenges coming up there. Are we starting something with Canada? We don't know what all is going to happen in the future. But as uh, servants of the living God, the one who sits on the throne, we can rest assured that he's got you. He's got this. He's not surprised by it. His hand is still on history and the course of uh, human events. And so we just want to be faithful to do our part. We need to be on our knees praying. So there you have it. All right, tomorrow, David Brog reclaiming Israel's history. I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering portions of today's program. James Blind for engineering portions of and all uh, producing all of today's programs. Hard to keep it all straight. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.